Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Friday, May 29th. We begin with our weekly conversation with Mayor Nahed Nenshi. The mayor gives us the details on the new vehicle restrictions on Stephen Avenue now in effect, which will give restaurants the chance to increase their outdoor patio seating for customers. Next, we hear the personal story of a Calgary interior designer who has some thoughts on long-term care facilities and how the design of them should be updated for the future. We hear how she's using her experience of having a family member in long-term care to suggest changes she thinks are necessary. Then we look at the process and methodology used by pollsters. We speak with Ipsos CEO Daryl Bricker on the details of constructing a poll down to choosing the questions being asked. It's been a wild week south of the border from racial tensions sparking massive public protests, the president lashing out at social media, and of course the continuing battle against the coronavirus. We get the latest from Jackson Prosco, Washington Bureau Chief for Global News. And finally, we hear the story of how one Calgary family is going above and beyond to help neighbours out during the pandemic. It's our third installment of Community Champions. 7.42 on the morning news, and normally in this time slot, we'd speak with Danielle Smith, brought to you by River's Edge Villa, Bungalows and Cochrane. Call to book your private appointment. Show homes now open. Of course, these aren't normal times, so we've been fortunate enough to be joined by Mayor Nahed Nenshi for a weekly check-in at kind of a state of the city during the pandemic. Good morning, Mayor. Good morning. I want to touch base with something that's going to be uh, looking a little bit different uh, starting in the next few hours. Stephen Avenue, and this is, to me, just a great idea. Tell us how it it came to be as far as restricting vehicular traffic on Stephen Avenue. Well, so the idea here is because the restaurants are restricted to 50% of their capacity and because we really do believe that uh, the transmission of the virus is more difficult outdoors than indoors, We thought this was an opportunity to allow some of those restaurants to expand their patios so that they could have more capacity and still keep people safe. And so the way to do that was to allow those patios to push right to the edge of the sidewalk, right to the curb, and change that narrow lane. If you know Stephen Avenue, you know there's a narrow driving lane that's only in the evenings, it's pedestrians during the day, and just make that pedestrians and cyclists all day and all evening. Uh, except for a few hours in the morning for loading. And that really will help those restaurants uh, get more lunch and dinner and after-work business. And we're going to give that a go. Uh, We'll reassess it, of course, after a week, make sure it's working. Uh, And if it is working, keep that in place uh, for the rest of the summer just to help those businesses out a little. And of course, course, prepping us for our new entertainment district to be at some point in time. So hopefully that will uh, continue. And Mayor, you know, on that note, businesses, we're now, you know, a a few days into the second phase of phase one, I guess you could say. How how are you hearing from businesses and what are you hearing from businesses, I should say, in terms of the reopening and and how, you know, they're faring in the economics of it all? You know, generally pretty good. Citizens are doing a great job and businesses are also doing a great job on maintaining that physical distancing. Uh, I myself, you know, basically for the last few months have been at home at the Emergency Operations Center and at City Hall. And yesterday I took the opportunity to go down Stephen Avenue, talk to some of the restaurant owners, see how things uh, were going there. And, you know, they're really taking this seriously as servers are wearing masks and so on. And what we need is to make sure citizens are also taking it seriously. Because we're now at the phase where the future growth of the pandemic, the second wave that we've been talking about a lot is really in the hands of citizens. And we need people to double down on their good behavior, to stay safe. Uh, I didn't see as many masks as I would have liked to have seen. Remember, the public health advice is if you're going to be out in public with people you don't know, you should be covering your mouth and nose. 
Uh, you should be wearing some sort of face covering. You should download that Trace Together app. And I know there's some concerns around privacy and so on, but it is really the right thing to do. And I trust the government's uh, uh, guarantees on what they're doing there. So you really just do have to be safe. Uh, I should highlight, too, there's been a little bit of confusion over the rules around who can go to the restaurant. And here's the deal. Alberta Health is recommending that if you're sitting at a table at a restaurant, you really should be sitting at that table with people in your bubble, the people you live with or the, the bubble you've created with one other family. Uh, it means you really shouldn't be meeting people that you don't live with. Now, we're not, of course, um, going to make every server police that. Nobody's going to ask for ID and check your address. Uh, but we are relying on citizens to to try and do the right thing. So while it's not mandatory, that is the recommendation. A lot of uh, Calgarians got the uh, envelopes in the mailboxes this week, uh, property taxes, and um, I'm hearing about quite the wild range. Can you tell us the range of percentage that people, I know in my case, I had a 12% increase. I've heard as high as 20% on, on social media. What is what is the range uh, that uh, Calgarians can expect? The average home, which is a $440,000 home, if your uh, assessment didn't change, uh, if your assessment changed the same amount as the average, which is it went down a little bit, um, then the average home will see an increase of about $20 a month. That's the provincial and the uh, city together. The city portion is about $11. I have a big letter uh, in the tax bill trying to explain all of this. Um, now, if you're on the TIPS program, because the increase is sort of shoehorned into the last six months, you'll see a bigger monthly increase than that. But over the year, uh, it averages out to about $20 a month. And like every year, there's going to be big swings. Last year's assessment, really, there were some neighborhoods that went down quite a bit and some that went up quite a bit. So you are seeing a range. You know, in my own office, uh, we've been sharing. I haven't got mine yet, weirdly, but we've been sharing our... Uh, our bills and you know as you say uh andrew there 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 is a bit of a range some people went down up to 15 percent. i think in my office the biggest one we saw was an increase of about 11 percent. well thank you for joining us mayor i wish we had more time to chat but uh, have a great weekend and we'll check in with you again next week thanks everybody please make sure you stay safe we're going to have a beautiful weekend i want people to go out enjoy the beautiful weather but make sure you stay safe and if you're visiting one of those new playgrounds they're not new the playgrounds that are now open really it's up to the parents to make sure that everything's fine take those wipes with you wipe down the surfaces before and after have loads of hand sanitizer make sure you wash your hands before and after and everyone will be able to stay safe so thanks so much continue to be kind we've saved thousands of lives uh, because of our actions mm-hmm. and we'll save thousands more thank you that is mayor thank Nahed. you have a good weekend that is mayor nahed nenshi 608 on the morning news. COVID-19 has highlighted serious issues with the design of long-term care facilities. Our next guest has realized the deep connection between the design of facilities and the quality of care patients in them receive. We're joined now by Calgary interior designer and gerontologist Margot Schulman. Good morning, Margot. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thank you for joining us this morning. We'll talk about your design ideas and your design background, but to a certain extent, this was born from a personal experience. Can you tell us your story? Uh, I sure can. I, um, I, I really believe our lives are designed to, um, to do, um, well, for me, to do exactly what I'm doing. I had a brother who was severely head injured in a bike accident when we were quite young and um, sustained a catastrophic head injury. And he was placed in um, uh, senior care after living in hospital for just a little bit over a year in a coma. 
And so what I what I um, understood from all my experience was that these these homes are really not designed to foster well-being and to um, you know help create growth and joy and autonomy. And and I just uh, over think over the course of about 22 years that Dave lived in different nursing homes, he had close to 40 different roommates and over a thousand different care providers. And I just, I just know that we, we have a, there's a, there's far better solutions that we're able to create um, to look after our vulnerable population. Margot, can you talk to us a bit? Because I have never been in a care home, whether for you know someone who has been injured like your brother was, or for a senior. So I don't know how here in Calgary or Alberta they're necessarily set up. Is there sort of a a, a general recipe for how they put them together? Well, I think you know I don't I don't believe there is. Um, I, I think you know in in most care homes it's really it comes down to availability of beds. And, um, you know, that's where I think, you know, part of the problem lays is that we're, we're just, you know, really um, warehousing people. And um, I think that, that that's really the problem that, you know, that we're, we're, that the existing homes are based on a traditional design and care model that's ex- extremely institutionalized. So should we more envision a, a, a hospital ward versus private rooms for each person? You got it. Uh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think they're also, you know, and, and I think based on, on that model of, you know, 60 years ago, they're built for efficiencies, right? They're built to... Um, create efficiencies for the operator and for the care providers. Um, they're not built for, you know, looking at the uniqueness of each individual and catering to exactly what their, their particular needs are. Talked about your background. You've talked about the needs. Now let's bring the design aspect in. How can we make these uh, facilities you know, uh, more livable and not just about the necessities of life, uh, but building a real quality of life? Well, this is this is the work that we are just so passionate about doing, and I think what what we need to look at the real solutions are small home models that house eight to ten residents with consistent care partners that are trained and educated in geriatrics. You know, this this should be their area of expertise, their skill set, and their knowledge base. I think really what it, what it comes down to is we really want um, you know the right people doing the right things with the right training for the right reasons for the right results right and then we have the opportunity now to write history um i think that we um really need to focus on the specificness and that uniqueness um and the needs of the care and the residents and what they really deserve what about those who would argue though that the, the cost would be prohibitive to do something like that well i mean look what it's costing us I think, I think, you know, really the government needs to, you know, the federal and provincial governments, we need to start to work together. And I think that when we look at what the costs are that we're incurring, I don't think we can afford not to do something and make a difference. Um, you know, we, I think prevention is key. We know that if we have consistent care partners that, you know, are really familiar with those residents and, and know their personal history or even their, their, back, their, their background medically. I can give you an example. I think... You know, if we have consistent care partners and someone's got, you know, certain medical conditions, you know, something like diverticulitis, that care provider can actually start to sense and see that there might be some type of, you know, issue or it's flaring up again. And they're able to flag it before doctors have to be called in or before that resident needs to, you know, go into hospital for additional care or treatment. 
So uh, one of the things that you mentioned when you when you write down your thoughts on the design is that you know when we uh, look at and research these centers, uh, it looks at the amount of hours, for example, staff spends uh, with the clients and uh, not the quality of that time, if you will. So the new design you think would be uh, uh, fostering more of a connection? Absolutely. I mean, I think connection is key. Um, you know, I think if, if anything, that's what we're starting to see with COVID. I, that, that's what it's highlighting is that, you know, so many of us right now are disconnected. And I think if we think about seniors, that, that's really what they've been feeling and, and the environment that they've been living in for a very long time. I think we need to, to look at, you know, what actually brings them joy, what makes them happy, what makes them healthier. And we know that happy people are healthier, right? So mm-hmm. I think there's there's definitely savings in this. And um, I think there's just, I mean, we've just got such an opportunity now to create the model um, that that is, is designed, you know, and, and utilized in Europe. I think Canada, I mean, this is, you know, I, I hate to say this, but it's, it's a real embarrassment to see, you know, these stories come to light and mm-hmm. that, that it's the military that's had to bring them to light. I mean, these, these people have been in war zones and they're horrified. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think we've got such, such a great opportunity and, you know, I've created a business plan based on a new model after traveling through Europe and, and the United States. And, um, you know, it's, it's difficult. It was difficult to bring that, um, to fruition because of the extent, um, of care. So, you know, government really needs to step in and create some national standards and guidelines. And I think funding needs to be tied to that. You know, you talked about Europe, so that's what I was going to ask you about. You, from your experience, both personal and professional, because you've got both in this case. What would the you know the ultimate home look like or, or feel like to you? Well, you know, and this is and thank you for asking because we were actually as a family able to advocate on behalf of my brother's um, um, well-being, and we were actually able to advocate to create a home within a home in Sherbrooke Center in Saskatoon. And so I think, you know, that's exactly the model. And that was a model that was implemented um, over, you know, oh gosh, I think 17 years ago. And so what, what that looked like was a, it was a, um, a, a bungalow within a nursing home. It brought like-minded people together, so young men that were sort of more or less high risk with head injuries. And they were able to live um, with their own private uh, bedrooms, bathrooms, a beautiful kitchen and island that you could just wheel right up to. Um, they had consistent care partners, green space, uh, the ability to actually function as a family. And when you start to when we started to see that um, the effects that it had on these, not only Dave but also you know his roommates, um, it was just incredible. We were finally able to see you know the the joy and um, Dave's personality come through. And so. Um, you know, it's really based on this on this small um, model with consistent, highly trained care providers. Wow, some great ideas mm-hmm. there. And best of luck to you to push them forward. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Margot. Thank you. Thank you so much. That is Margot Schulman, a Calgary interior designer and gerontologist. She's calling for change in Canadian care homes. 842, this is where we would normally check in with Danielle. She's off today. Danielle brought to you by Jamin Built, building resort-style bungalows in the exclusive community of Riversong in Cochrane. Now, yesterday, we spoke with Ipsos CEO Daryl Bricker about a new poll on gun control done exclusively for Global News. And many of you texted in suggesting the questions were slanted, the results were skewed. So we thought we'd bring Daryl back on today to discuss how polling is done and how... Uh, 
you know, Ipsos can even remain impartial in something like this. So good morning to you, Daryl. Thanks for joining us again. My pleasure. Uh, here in Alberta, the poll was not popular, likely because a lot of people here like their guns. So can you explain to us how the polling is done, who you asked, how you keep impartial? Oh, how we keep impartial? We're not. Uh, we're working for Global News on this, so our, just like you are impartial as an employee of Global News, we're uh, um, also impartial as a supplier to Global News. Uh, we don't have a, we don't have a, a dog in this hunt, to use a pun. Um, but uh, um, in terms of how people are selected for the survey, uh, this is an online poll, so we have a panel of people that are representative of Canadians that we uh, that we interview on this and a whole series of other topics all the time. So uh, the way that we uh, get them off of that panel is we randomly select them, the representative of the population, and we simply compose what we think is a valid question to ask about uh, about a particular issue, whether it's about politics, whether it's about this issue, whether it's about some of the issues that they were talking about on the, uh, the business report. We do it all the same. So when it comes to the actual questions themselves, Daryl, and I'm sure with this poll or with any poll and the methodology behind it, is it, uh, is, um, you know, pointed enough to be not ambiguous, no gray area, kind of a this side or that side question? Uh, no. I mean, I can actually just give you a second here and I'll pull it up. I mean, I'm, you know, we can t- talk as we go along. When it comes to question composition, we write the actual questions. Uh, I think I'm trying to remember if it was me personally that wrote uh, uh, this, this particular question. But it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty straightforward question. Um, let me just get it here. And what- uh, it is... It says, basically, I support the government's ban on military-style assault weapons. Yes or no? Yeah. that's. A- yeah, I mean, do we agree or disagree? Okay. And is that normally straightforward questioning like that that you do anytime you put together right. a poll? Yes. And, and the other thing that we hear is, you know, people aren't really informed about what this means. Well, they're informed enough to give us an opinion. Uh, and, uh, you know, this isn't, we're not, just interviewing people who are, have deep detail and knowledge mm-hmm. about uh, about guns. I mean, it's anybody who has an opinion about this kind of thing is pre- who's prepared to offer, offer it up. It's randomly representative of what Canadians think. That's basically the electorate. So, you know, when I do hear comments back from people that say, well, you know, um, it doesn't represent my friends, it doesn't represent what people who have my deep interest in this happen to think, well, it's not just about you. It's about the 82 other percent of the population who ha- actually happen to think differently. The other uh, uh, query we had was it must not have been a nationwide poll. It must not have of uh, taken part. Okay, so you did cover every corner of the nation. Yeah, no, it's um, as as we do every time. Good stuff. Excellent, and every province and every city. I mean, you really try to be as representative every as province, possible. Every city. In fact, we did a we just did a survey asking people about banning all guns, in which we interviewed I think it was 500 people in Calgary. I mean, if if people really think that there's a huge coalition out there supporting. Uh, guns, uh, and particularly military-style assault weapons, you might be surprised if you went out and randomly just talked to people who are on the street, basically kind of like the, like we did, uh, except in a, obviously a more systematic way, about what people actually think about this. And there is not a lot of strong general population support for firearms in Canada. It's just the truth. Daryl, thank you so much for your clarification, because if uh, people are texting about things, we like to get answers, and we appreciate you uh, coming on and uh, sharing your methods with us. Thank you very much. That is Daryl Bricker, Ipsos CEO. 8.48 on the morning news. 29 of 48 national parks will reopen, including Banff, Waterton, Jasper National Parks. 
Opening tomorrow, we are joined by the Minister of Environment, Jonathan Wilkinson, to discuss what this means for Calgarians. Good morning, Minister Wilkinson. Good morning. So I'm wondering, I know that a lot of people have been itching to get out there, head west, if it's or down south to Waterton, but heading west to Banff. Will people see anything different when they go to a national park with this uh, reopening? Well, they will. I mean, this is a partial reopening. It's the beginning. Um, and uh, so initially, it's really day use. So the trails, uh, many of the trails will be open and a lot of the day use areas, the washrooms and those kinds of things. Um, but it, it will not be open for camping. So the campgrounds will not be open. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, we will be working to ensure we're managing the number of people that are there to ensure that there's appropriate space for folks. So there may be areas uh, like in the parking lots where some areas are not not open for parking. But by and large, the parks will look a lot like they did uh, before uh, before uh, this uh, this uh, crisis. Except we don't necessarily have to truck in our own toilet paper, so that's good news, Minister. So uh, how do you how do you ensure that you keep the washrooms safe? You, you have a lot of employees who will sort of be focused on that. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things that we've been doing over the past couple of weeks since we announced that we would be taking this step is making sure that the, the parks are in the appropriate shape to welcome people and welcome them safely. That includes ensuring that we've got all the appropriate supplies, that we've got people that are staffed there, that the protocols are in place so that there is uh, good sanitation in the washrooms. But, um, but we're comfortable that we've got all of that in place. We wouldn't open the parks unless they would be safe for people to come and safe for our, our employees at Parks Canada. Give us a behind-the-scenes look at uh, what the employees of our national parks have been doing during this pandemic. Were uh, some still working? Were, were they uh, at home? And uh, how long uh, before this reopening had they did they have to get back into their uh, positions on, on a regular basis? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of a mix. There certainly were some activities that continue. I mean, as you know, you know, we have uh, we have to have people to do avalanche control and mm-hmm. and uh, those kinds of things on an ongoing basis, given that we have highways going through some of the parks. Um, and uh, sort of safety-related issues. Uh, so there were a number of people that continued to be employed in the parks, um, and then there were a number of folks who were working from home, um, a lot of those folks doing planning for exactly this, the, the kind of reopening and, and ultimately getting back to uh, a somewhat new normal um, later this summer, hopefully. Um, and, uh, and so it did take uh, two to three weeks to sort of mobilize everybody and get the appropriate PPE and, and, uh, and get the parks ready for folks to... Uh, to come back. Minister, are there some rules, some some warnings, some heads up you'd like to share with the listeners, just things to be aware of and, and be, you know, really mindful? Coming up to 709 on the morning news, more than 100,000 Americans have died due to the coronavirus. The president is holding a public battle against social media, but the real headline this morning would be the racial tension and Minneapolis literally on fire. With the latest on a very busy week in the U.S., we're joined by Washington Bureau Chief for Global News, Jackson Proskow. Jackson, what can you tell us about Minneapolis this morning? It seems to be an evening uh, affair that we're seeing this, uh, this pattern, uh, but how is the city doing this morning? Yeah, good morning. Uh, It was the third night in a row of violent protests, and it actually saw protesters breach the line at the police precinct not far from where George Floyd was killed at the hands of Minneapolis police. The precinct was torched. Several other buildings were set on fire as well. Uh, And then early this morning, uh, just before uh, 5 a.m. local time, uh, a CNN reporter uh, was on the air, and he and his crew were arrested by Minnesota state troopers at the scene, uh, despite the fact 
fact that he clearly identified himself as a journalist. And we should point out that he is uh, African-American, Hispanic, uh, and his white colleague, who was reporting just a block away, also had a confrontation with police and said that they treated him quite respectfully and left him alone. So uh, it, it really feels like things are spiraling out of control this morning. And what is happening? Have we heard from the president this morning? And we, have we heard from the uh, the governor of Minnesota? What's the situation and with the police, too, that were involved in the death of George Floyd? Uh, so the officers uh, who are involved in the death all have been fired. Um, the uh, FBI and state attorney general say they are investigating charges. Um, obviously, many people feel, uh, including the mayor of Minneapolis, that charges against the officer, especially the, the one who was seen kneeling on Floyd's neck, uh, would be a slam dunk. Uh, the attorney general says there is evidence uh, to suggest otherwise, wouldn't say what that is. Uh, we're expecting an update from the governor of Minnesota uh, in uh, about two hours time and uh, as for your third question for what the president's saying you know he fired off these tweets in the middle of the night that were censored by twitter uh trump used the line when the looting starts the shooting starts which actually has its origins uh back during the civil rights movement in the 1960s uh with a police chief in miami who was widely viewed as implementing racist policing policies uh that tweet was flagged by twitter you can still see it but you have to click an acceptance screen first uh twitter feels that the uh, the message is glorifying violence. We'll get to the, the, the Twitter verse in a second because lots to unpack there. Well, all social media, but as, as far as the latest in Minneapolis, is the army uh, officially in town? Are they uh, going to do kind of a lockdown? There are 500 National Guard troops uh, who are there at this point. Uh, I believe they're just there to keep the peace, and we'll have to wait for the update from local officials as to whether anything else is going to happen. Um, I think it's worth noting that the mayor and local leaders have essentially said, you know, the level of anger that is out there right now is perfectly understandable. It is not the result of one incident with police. It's not the result of five awful minutes. It is the result of 400 years of systemic racism and those policies in the United States. And these are angers and tensions that are that are boiling over but they've been simmering for a very long time wow well we're certainly following that today let's move over to social media uh donald trump has a, an ongoing battle now he doesn't like that twitter is putting warnings on his tweets and now wants to do something about it yeah, I mean, I have to be honest with you, a lot of people are mystified as to why this is a priority at all, given everything going on in Minneapolis, given the fact that 100,000 Americans have died from this pandemic. But nevertheless, this is the, the fight that the president is uh, choosing right now. And of course, Twitter is not actually censoring his content. They are simply putting warnings on it. They are fact-checking it. Uh, Trump argues that, uh, you know, fact-checking is not being applied equally, and it's not the place of social media companies to do this. Facebook has certainly said it's not going to do this. Uh, you you could also make the argument, though, that uh, no one's free speech is being stifled here, uh, that the president's words and tweets carry far more weight than the average person. And last but not least, these are private companies. And even though we don't read those lengthy agreements, we just click accept. Uh, private companies can put whatever terms and conditions on the use of their service that they want. This is not a public service. It's a private company. Would there be any chance that he could have some sort of control uh, uh, over social media? You know, legal experts I've spoken to uh, feel that the, the argument is dubious at best. Again, it's a private company. It is not censoring his message. It's simply putting a fact check message there. And the bottom line, as with so many platforms, is if you don't like it, don't use the platform. I think that's what it may come down to. Uh, most legal experts have had a hard time believing that there's a freedom of speech argument to be made when the president is still allowed to post whatever he wants. Uh, it's just being fact checked. 
Now, Jackson, do you know much about, uh, we've heard if this executive order goes through, that this could somehow compromise a trade agreement between the U.S., Canada, Mexico, how that sort of rolls out? Yeah, I'm, I'm not super up on the details of that, to be honest. There is so much else going yeah, on yeah. at the moment, but uh, uh, I'd be curious to, to find out more about it's that. It's certainly something that's being talked about now, for sure, yeah. yeah. Kind of a, a, the past two days have bumped, to a certain extent, coronavirus in the USA from the top headlines. But let's talk about coronavirus. Mm-hmm. It looks to me, and I'm just, again, uh, from what I've been digging about, 500 to 1,000 deaths per day on average. Originally, that estimate from uh, a couple weeks ago was 130,000 deaths perhaps by August. And then they, I think they bumped it to 140,000 deaths. Uh, it doesn't seem to be uh, maybe slowing in some parts, but then other parts seem to crop up. Uh, those estimates uh, look like they could easily be achieved as far as the death uh, toll is concerned. Yeah, unfortunately. I mean, I think there's almost a sense of resignation that this is just going to be a thing that America lives with, kind of like gun violence, as the uh, uh, many people have pointed out, uh, as opposed to trying to stamp it out the way other countries like South Korea have done. Uh, the reopening is underway in full swing, and in 26 states, cases are either rising in their case numbers or they're remaining flat. They're not decreasing. So all of those things are certainly uh, alarming. Uh, and I can tell you, there's still a huge disparity in how places are reopening. So here in Washington, as of today, you can get a haircut and you can sit on a half-full restaurant patio. That's about it. Uh, the, the various stages, there's no timeline for moving beyond that. Uh, D.C. is saying, hey, you will not be able to go to a concert, a sporting event, or sit indoors in a full restaurant until there's a cure or a vaccine. Mm-hmm. Other places, though, never put any sort of stay-at-home order in effect in the first place. And you're seeing uh, in Alabama, they have run out of ICU beds. And in Arkansas, they're seeing uh, a second wave already. North Carolina had two days in a row of setting new records for new case numbers. So I think it gives you a sense that this is going to be with us for a, a long time here. And a quick touch on the upcoming presidential election. I mean, not this has really taken a, a back seat for sure, but Joe Biden has certainly come out oh, just over the past couple of days and, and really speaking up in terms of the civil unrest as well. Yeah, and I think you'll see more and more of that. I think Biden has struggled to sort of find a way to campaign when he has been stuck at home like the rest of yeah. us for the past few months. He's starting to get out there a little bit more. He's doing a lot of interviews from home. Uh, really, I think everything that's going on right now, whether it's the situation in Minneapolis, whether it's the issue of wearing a mask during a pandemic, it's all going to be politicized and part of this presidential campaign. And you're already seeing Trump and Biden showdown over over the issue of wearing masks is just one example. Thank you so much for the update and have a good weekend, Jackson. You as well. That is Jackson Proskow, Washington Bureau Chief for Global News. 819 on the morning news. Uh, This is something we've been very excited to bring you over the past handful of days. And we told you about it, I think, uh, early last week. And uh, this is the week that we're hearing the stories of community champions who have been nominated for what they have done to go above and beyond during this pandemic to help out their fellow Calgarians, big task or small task, they've made a difference. So what we do is we interview the nominators on why they think uh, that their family, friend, co-workers or neighbors should be a community champion. Today's nominator is a- uh, Amy Veldwin. Am I saying your last name correctly, Amy? You are. Oh, oh yes. So Amy Veldwin, uh, you would like to nominate a family to be a community champion. Who are you nominating and why? I'm nominating the Cron family who live on our block. Um, they are Mark, Jenny, Brianna, Sarah, Katie, and Chelsea. They, the family of six have helped us so much through uh, everything that's been going on. 
for my husband and myself personally. They have taken on the task of helping us, particularly with an extremely active puppy that we um, adopted about a year ago. We are seniors and thought this would be no challenge at all. Well, it's been absolutely crazy, and we're unable to walk her daily, and she's very, very active, and the Cron family took the job of taking her on their daily walk with their entire family and dogs every day without a hitch, rain, shine, whatever. They were very instrumental in setting up an email thread with about 15 members of our block, um, some of them being seniors, at the start of all this to make sure that anyone who needed help or didn't feel well or had groceries to be picked up or whatever, that they were there to help out. And their four girls and their smiles have really kept us going. Uh, That truly is a family that you could consider a community champion because not just looking after you, but a, a bunch of people in the area, just making sure that everybody has what they need through a difficult time. That's really impressive. And, and, and do they, do they ask for anything in return, Amy? Absolutely nothing. Um, an occasional plate of cookies or (laughs) a sit outside, uh, socially distancing all the time, of course, um, just to sit around and enjoy a chat because everybody is missing that family connection and they've kind of become that for us. What a great story. Mm-hmm. Thank you for reaching out. Thank you for writing in and uh, telling us the story of the Cron family and nominating them uh, community champions. I'm looking forward to hearing their name at the end of all <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I'll tell you what, uh, what, what a great uh, story, and uh, they're certainly in the running. Thank Thanks, you. Amy. Alrighty. Bye now. That is Amy Veldewin, who has nominated the Cron family to be the community champions. They truly are champions. Good on them. Now, at the end, when we get through this whole community champion initiative, one lucky champion, potentially family of champions, Mm -hmm. will get $350 to Calgary Co-op, delivered right to their door by our 770 CHQR community cruiser powered by Bow West Appliance. So we are asking all of you to look around and to think about the people who have stepped up and helped out and done something good in the community and help us celebrate our unsung local heroes here in the city of Calgary. Make it easy for you. Oh, absolutely. Hop online, 770CHQR.ca. Click on the Contests tab and look for the Community Champions. Little box there, click on it, fill it out, and make a difference.